Well, we are all familiar with the New Year's resolution. As far as I can tell, this concept goes way back even to ancient Babylon. The aim is to make a change, to improve. Maybe we start something. Maybe we stop something. We're familiar enough with a few of them, at least the more popular resolutions. There's the gym membership, the diet plan, the Bible reading plan. But what I want to do for you this morning is set before you a different type of resolution. It is a resolution for the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I admit to you that I am about one week late on this. You may be off and running already with your resolution for this year, but this one doesn't need to replace it. It can come in right alongside it. It's a single message. It's a single verse. Next week, we begin a new sermon series where we're going to go really verse by verse through a book of the Bible. But this morning, I invite you to 1 Thessalonians. It's chapter 5, verse 14. And if you forgot your Bible this morning, we put the verse right on the front of the bulletin for you. Because it is a resolution. It's a resolution to the horizontal portion of the Christian faith. Now, when you and I come to faith in Christ, we gain a new relationship. We have a relationship with God. We call that a vertical relationship. But when we come to faith in Christ, we also gain a horizontal aspect, a relationship with the people of God. And I propose, what I propose this morning is, in fact, rare among resolutions. After all, this resolution isn't going to help you fit into those genes. I can't promise to lower your cholesterol if you do these things. And it has no impact on your bank balance. But it will Mark this, this will make you an obedient Christian, at least in many ways. This will make you friends. People need what you give. This will increase your joy. You're going to find a satisfaction and a joy in performing this passage. And this will stretch you. Because it's going to turn all of this, this thing we do, this thing called church, into not just a service to receive, but a a community to cherish. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, or we urge you, sisters, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Now, this passage is somewhat easy to follow. It has four points. I think you can see them quite clearly. They're separated by commas. That's going to give you an outline to follow today. It's four points. You may have heard a certain cadence to the passage. It it does carry a, a certain cadence to it as it flows from one point into the next. In the original language, it would have been written in Greek. There's four three-word 
clauses or, or three-word segments. Each of these begins with a command, and it concludes with an adjective. It's going to name some group or some different group of people. And just consider the, the breadth of this passage for a moment, how wide-reaching this verse is. In each of these groups, we're going to find different types of people. We're going to meet the unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak. In the commands, we find many different people. We're going to find rescuers and encouragers and helpers in this passage. This passage reminds us that not every scenario in the church is a nail. Meaning that not every tool we use in the church is a hammer. There's going to be a variety of different people in the church requiring a variety of different responses. But when we really distill this down, we wind up with two different types of Christians here. There's the strong and the weak. Each one of us is a patchwork of various strengths and various weaknesses. There are seasons of life where we are stronger and seasons when we are weaker. Life is an experience of this, of strength and weakness. To be weak is not a failure. To refuse to let the church do what God commands her to do, that is. To be strong is not a victory. The victory is for the strong to do what God commands in verse 14. Strength is no perch for you and I when we are strong to, to sit upon and clean our feathers. Strength is no occasion to brag. The weak of these verses, the object of each command, they should be asking, how am I pursuing help from the strong? And likewise, in this passage, the strong, they should be carrying out the commands, how am I helping the weak? It's a wide-ranging verse. Because each of us are going to experience a wide range of ups and downs in this life, in this year, to make it a resolution. And consider, secondly, the depth of this passage. Listen to how definitive it is. I call this a command-heavy sentence. There's four commands in one verse. It finds itself in the middle of a command-heavy passage. Paul here is concluding the letter with a few different commands. Verse 15 is a command. Verse 16, that is, by the way, probably the shortest verse in the Bible, depending upon how you count, count shortness. There's verse 18, verse 19, and so on. So what does all this teach us about God's plan for his church? The plan is you. These commands are one leading way God gives grace to his people. You and I, bumping up against one another as Christians. This is what God intends as a way of ministering to us. Which is surprising. Because after all, the church is filled with sinners. And let's be honest. There are some people you don't want to extend these commands to. And there are other people who, quite frankly, stink at doing them. But these commands are still for everyone. 
They're for each of us. They're for you. Notice that these commands are not for church leaders alone. The reflex is to call the pastor or to summon the elders or to talk to the deacons to let them know, hey, hey, so-and-so is out of line. You need to go and talk to him. Or, or a sister is having a problem. She's having a weakness. She needs help. You need to go and, and help her. No, Paul says, we urge you, brethren. Literally, we appeal or we exhort to you all. So, if you're in search of a resolution today, if you're still in search of a resolution, what do we need to do? First, we need to admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. The unruly need to be warned. The Bible versions are going to vary in how they describe this first group. Your Bible version may say they are the disorderly, the idler, the lazy, the irresponsible. The original meaning of the word has to do with being out of step. Literally, it's a soldier who's out of rank. And this word's going to cut in two different directions. On one hand, if the person is active, it's going to be some kind of disorderly or unruly conduct. If the person is more passive, it's going to be uh, somewhat of an idling about or a laziness. That's why we have these different words in English for it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the same word is used of being lazy. In that passage, in the context, there's a bunch of these Thessalonian Christians who are just kind of laying around. They're not really doing any work. In verse 6 of that chapter, they quote, lead an unruly life. In verse 11, they lead an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. The words in that passage, unruly, undisciplined, it's the same word that's used in our verse this morning. And some believe that they arrived at this point because they got their eschatology wrong, their theology or or belief about the end times events. They quit working. They believed that the return of Jesus already already took place, or excuse me, it's going to happen any minute, so we just need to sit here and wait for him. And just to be clear, the return of Jesus could happen at any minute, only he has things for us to do while we wait. So it's possible that this command could be confined more to the, to the freeloader or, or to the lazy. But I think it's probably fuller than that. It's probably going to be a, more broad. It's going to refer to any brother or sister who wanders. What's the command? The command is admonish. Of the words we read this morning, this one will be the one we're least inclined to obey. Sometimes in my preaching ministry, as I look out, I think I see just a very gentle, slow shake of the head. I think I saw a few of those as I said, admonish. You're all wondering, do I do that when he's preaching? It's a tough, tough concept to grasp. It's one that's going to be more difficult to to want to follow or pursue. To admonish is to simply warn or, or to counsel. It's a compound word, and it puts two words together. It means to place in one's mind. 
practically applied as we think about what this looks like, we want to think more uh, along the line of coming up to a friend and, and putting our arm around this person. This is not a pitchfork. This is not a flame. This is not that type of image. This is not a, a, a call to be the police either. This is not a call to grab a badge and a trusty steed and to, 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 to trot around the church and look for vigilantes. No, this is going to be a, more of a gentle counsel. And I understand that there's a discomfort that comes with this particular command. And there's concerns that it can go wrong in, in so many ways. I want to flesh out just a few ways that we want to think about this. If we're ready to resolve to this verse this morning, what do we do? How do I do this? What does it look like to admonish? I want to say that it means to do something as opposed to nothing. In the case of a wayward believer, the worst thing that we could do is nothing. Followed by apathy, followed by gossip, and so on. The first thing we want to do, and we know this, is to simply pray about the admonishment. Lord, what do I say? Lord, grant me opportunity. That's a great way to to begin to think about this. We need to invite the Lord into this conversation. Secondly, I think what the Lord would want us to do next is to consider ourselves. And this is Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is giving instructions on, on how to approach situations like this. He's going to talk about taking the log out of your own eye before removing the speck from another. It's not that we don't deal with other people. It's that we do deal with ourselves first. Thirdly, I think it's helpful to think about what we might say, to think about what words we might use in advance. Is there a sin taking place here? Or is this more of a general warning a way to caution a believer who's walking too close to the edge. How do I begin the conversation? What do I use to build that person up and encourage them? After all, we are trying to restore and help, not to alienate a brother or sister. So Paul begins this passage with this idea of admonish. Admonish the unruly. Next, he says, secondly, encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. If you're using a, a King James Version this morning, don't be thrown by the word you see. Apparently, Old English for faint-hearted is feeble-minded. It's not a great translation. <laughs> to be faint-hearted is to be discouraged. It's to be disheartened. It's another compound word. It puts the Greek word small alongside the word soul to be short-souled. Discouragement is all too real a feeling. When joy feels elusive, when happiness seems to evade, maybe in these moments there's little motivation to do much of anything. It's harder to do the things that we must do. For the Thessalonians, this feeling... It may be a feeling that came as a result of loss. Again, just trying to understand what Paul's writing to their experience before we think about ours. 
Some go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to, to try to understand what the experience might have been. At the end of verse 13, Paul's going to write to the faint-hearted. The Thessalonians are grieving the loss of fellow Christians. And he explains in verse 16, Paul does, that they that they will that they've missed, that they believe they've missed the resurrection of the dead. But he's trying to correct them and say, you haven't missed the resurrection of believers. That Jesus is going to return. Those still living will be caught up with them. We get our word rapture, by the way, from the Latin word for caught up in verse 17. But they had their beliefs wrong and that impacted how they were thinking about the future and perhaps even the opportunity to see loved ones again. But look at the end of verse 18. What are they supposed to do with these words? They are to comfort one another with these words. I don't know how much of chapter 4 should be read into the faint-hearted of chapter 5, but I'm sure that there was some correlation. But at the same time, this whole episode that they were experiencing there, I mean, this is a significant deal of Paul's writing about it in this letter to them. We understand this idea of being faint-hearted or discouraged. For them, it was the loss of someone that they loved and and never seeing them again. It has to do with, with knowing in our minds that we're never going to be able to do something again. This is the feeling that we get when it comes to grief. We're feeling anxiety or sorrow. We're feeling a a fatigue or even an anger. It's that idea bound up in this word. And Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. Comfort them. Console them. And encouragement, to be clear, can come in a variety of ways. Think about... um, cards or or gifts. I think about simply time spent with someone. There's all kinds of ways that we can encourage the faint-hearted. But I want us to glean this morning some wisdom on this, on how to do this from the book of Proverbs. You know that Proverbs is a book of wisdom, and Proverbs has a lot to say about our speech, about how we talk. So how do we encourage the faint-hearted according to the book of Proverbs? Well, we encourage them by using our words. We need to say a good word, and we need to say it out loud. That's a good reminder, especially for us as men. We need to to produce a a verbal encouragement from our mouths. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, the author writes, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. In other words, it's not enough to, to quietly hope someone will come out of the faint-heartedness or or pull out of that discouragement. It seems as though words are required. Secondly, as you speak or as you contemplate speech, realize that your words carry power. Words carry power. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. The honeycomb here is actually a a flow of honey or a liquid honey. Implied in this passage is that your your encouraging words would be a big boost to that person, which in fact they are. 
And don't underestimate the power of your encouraging words. Proverbs elsewhere speaks about uh, healing at a deep level. In this verse, it speaks about healing to the bones. That's to convey this idea of, of a deep impact. And again, we can't fix the circumstances always. And we can't undo some event, but, but encouraging words are sweet to the soul, says the wise man. Thirdly, discouragement needs your encouragement. Discouragement needs your encouragement. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Right circumstances are when a believer is discouraged. In fact, encouragement is on the menu for just about any occasion going to always, almost always be useful and, and edifying, but, but so much more when someone is discouraged. I would say very practically, if you encounter someone in the church, if someone is in your family, family of Christ and, and they need encouragement, be the one to encourage them. Assume that it is no random chance that they've crossed your path. Assume the role of encourager and, and don't assume that someone else will do it or, or it's up to others to handle that. Remember, all the passages or all the commands in this passage this morning, they apply to all believers. They apply to, to all of us. Maybe you don't believe yourself to be very good at encouraging. You'll grow with practice. And maybe you're better at it than, than you might know. Well, fourthly, encouragement is going to point Christians to Christ. Again, working through Proverbs 25, this time in verse 12, encouragement points Christians to Christ. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Here, wise encouragement is able to impart correction. It's an interesting thought. And this is going to require wise discernment. Again, Proverbs is going to speak about the timing of our speech, and we realize that the faint-hearted aren't always enthusiastic about receiving our correction. We need to be very wise and very careful in this timing. Nevertheless, it can provide an opportunity to do just this, those moments of discouragement. So how might we do that? Maybe our friend is discouraged about an event that happened today. Friend, I know that today was difficult, but there is always tomorrow. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. You see how that worked? You're able to encourage and turn that over. You're correcting a way of thinking. You're giving a word of reproof to help someone correct their thinking. So those things can go together. They probably go together. We probably do them more naturally than we know. But it's an important point to remember that sometimes encouragement, it's going to include a, a correction. Again, not in any harsh or, or angry way. It doesn't involve the rod, so to speak. But, but it does involve the ability to speak the truth of the Word of God into the life of the discouraged. Well, lastly, encouragement is going to help other people. Encouragement will help other people. And I'm sure that we are all up to this. It's Christianity 101. We're interested in helping other people. 
Proverbs 25, verse 13, like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger who sent him. For he refreshes the soul of his masters. Now, that might hit you a little funny. Because when you're thinking about refreshment, what are you thinking about? Sunshine and shorelines. That's right. What did our author think about? The cold of snow in the time of harvest. Well, to step back into the ancient Near East, in the time of harvest, it would have happened in a very hot, sweltery, dry climate. And this image of snow coming in, I mean, that is a fantastic thought, a very welcome thought. Now, we also know that obviously that wouldn't happen, that a weather system doesn't just kick, in, kick up in the time of harvest when it's hot and, and blows in. Though I will say there's evidence, for in the time of winter, they would bring snow down and pack it tightly in the ground and have it available for such occasions. But the point here is that the toil of the soul is refreshed by words. You help the discouraged when you encourage. And I suspect this morning that many of us probably don't receive the amount of encouragement that we need. At the same time, we probably don't encourage as much as we should. Resolve to be an encourager. To encourage the faint-hearted. And as you do, I am almost sure you'll find that you yourself, as the encourager, will walk away quite encouraged yourself and less likely to be discouraged. Well, our third point this morning, Paul continues with the exhortation to help the weak. To help the weak. Who are the weak? Is that someone who can't bench 135? Is this a push-up problem? No. Although we wouldn't want to rule out the physical aspect because we do have real physical weakness that does require help. But weakness can come in all kinds of packages. Weakness can happen emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. God has helped us in our weakness. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, the Bible says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The point here is that the weakness can be broadly defined. And God's plan for the weak is you. Help the weak, says Paul. In the New Testament, this word for help is pretty rare. But when it does occur, it's pretty interesting. It gets specific. In other words, it removes this general notion that seems to float around the term help and becomes more concrete. For example, to help is to be devoted. When Jesus preached about God and money, he said you cannot be committed to both. Now just think about that for a minute. You can't be committed to to God and you can't be committed to money. That's a pretty serious devotion, especially as we think about God, because we take that seriously. I am devoted to God. I want to be devoted to God. It's that type of devotion in that type of context for that word. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God in wealth. That's the same word for help in our verse today, devoted to. Consider, secondly, your commitment to the Bible. Think about your devotion and how you feel about God's word. In this world of confusion and lies, we we really turn to God's word. We value God's word. It's precious to us. We can continue with description. Paul says that church leaders must hold fast the faithful word. Hold fast is the same word translated as help in our verse. I say all this so you can see the depth and the richness of this command. Help the weak. Help is to be devoted to the weak. Help is to cling to the weak. Help is to hold fast to the weak. A few months ago, my family and I went roller skating in Linden. It's one of those outings where you hope you don't bump into anyone you might know. I don't know the last time I was on roller skates. That's why you hope you don't bump into anyone you can know. That was a little precarious at first, but it came back to me. Heather did amazing. Olivia, Caleb got into the routine. Matthew learned it. But Lucas, being two, clung to us. And we clung to him. We squeezed his hands and we would not let go. That is what this verse calls for. It is that kind of clinging, that kind of holding on, that kind of helping. And that's what we need to do. That's what we need to be as a church, a place that will help the weak. If you are strong this morning, help the weak. There are all kinds of ways you can do this because there's all kinds of weaknesses. I don't want to unpack all that. I would ask just quite simply to help. Don't ignore the weak. Just obey this command. Resolve to do this. I'm going to do this this year for the weak. And if you were weak this morning, let me add in right here that your ministry, it still counts. You might be running on E, but your engine is on. The weak this morning can't quit. Weakness provides a unique opportunity. It works in ways that we might not expect. Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. What an interesting way to think about our weakness. What a counterintuitive way to consider weakness in light of the world around us. The Bible does that often, does it not? The New Testament leads you and I this morning to ask, what will God do through the weak? Not what will he do through the strong, although that's important too. In other words, weakness, it can't be the ejection button from this verse. It's a condition, though it's a painful condition, to be embraced for the glory of God and the good of the church. That's the New Testament view on weakness. So how do we do all this? This sounds like a lot of work. Well, if you aim to follow these commands this year, you're going to need patience. Be patient with everybody, concludes Paul. 
This fourth and final command stretches beyond the different groups. We've identified three so far. We discussed the unruly and the faint-hearted and the weak. But this command extends to everyone. Because we will need to be patient. And people need to be patient with us. Sometimes those sinning, the unruly, they're not going to repent. You can admonish them, but they don't want to change. Sometimes the discouraged need more time. It's a ministry of encouragement that lasts for months or even years. Sometimes the weak just won't appreciate your help. But in an era, and this is the time in which we live, where we get everything right away, where we are conditioned to expect things right away, conditioned to be impatient, Paul says, be patient with everyone. Put up with everyone. This word is more than waiting, this word for patience. It has to do with the tolerating. And we can again illustrate this command by looking to the Lord. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Love is patient. And patience is seen in the Lord as he tolerates sinners. He is offering open hands, free forgiveness, full grace, and it's rejected. God is patient. So perhaps this morning you may not yet be a son or daughter of God. You're not a brother or sister to a local church family yet. Well, this verse is for you because what this verse does is this verse sketches out something called the gospel. God speaks to you. He warns. He counsels. He admonishes. He says to you that you have sin and your sin separates you from God. You may already know this. You may sense that something is not quite right between you and God. The Lord encourages you today that there is hope, that there is a way, that there is forgiveness. For the weak, there is help. His name is Jesus Christ, and he understands weakness. He lived the perfect life. He died on a cross for your sin, and he rose from the dead. And if you believe in him, you will be forgiven your sin. He is patient with everyone. But at the same time, don't put this off. For one day, the day is coming when we will pass from this life and live forever, either in hell or in heaven. For the Christian, for Emmanuel Bible Church, this is verses for you. This is a resolution for 2024. The hope would be that a year from now we could look back across the year and find out different ways that we applied these commands to the groups in our church. You can do it because Christ has given you grace to do it. Jesus has given you an example and he's giving you grace and power to walk in it. Jesus admonished the unruly. He restored Peter after he denied him three times. Jesus encouraged the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted in his final moments of life, the thief on the cross heard the words of Jesus. They lifted his spirit. They literally lifted his soul to heaven. 
Jesus helped the weak. He spent most of his time in his ministry with the weak. He talked to them. He fed them. He gave himself to them. And he lived with patience for everyone. He had many opportunities to be impatient, did he not? Consider Peter's impulsiveness and Judas's thieving. And after his victory, after his resurrection, on the other side of the cross, Thomas is doubting. These are just people within his circle that he knew and loved and invested in. Do you doubt this morning your ability to admonish, to encourage, to help, to be tolerant? I do. But we must not doubt the Lord's ability to help us. He can do through us what we cannot do on our own. And he can do what he proved so well he can do, and he can do it excellently. So resolve this week, resolve this year to make, to let the church be the church and be the church to the church and resolve to be both used by God as you do and blessed by God as you do. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your example and for your ministry of admonishing and encouraging and helping and tolerating. We pray for those ministries in each of our lives and upon Emmanuel Bible Church in abundance this year. Because when we get down to it, we are more the weak than we are the strong. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as you do, you would bless this church and you would bless each person here to carry out these glorious resolutions, these commands with one another and with others this year. This is a strong church. As we obey your word, we we grow strong. And I pray that we would see the unending value of obedience to this passage this year. May we bear fruit, may we see fruit, and may we give all glory to you for the fruit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.